This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. You ready? Yeah. All right, guys. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader, and here with me is returning the master, Mertansu. Before we get into that, I want to take care of a little bit of business. You got me? Number one, Axe Wax. Axe Wax is an all-natural, food-safe wax for your axes, for your steel, for your carbon, for your stainless, for your wood, for your G10, for your micarta, for your blether. Whatever it takes is all-natural, food-safe. So, And if you go to axewax.us and you put in your promo code FULLBLAST10, you're going to get 10% off all your Axe Wax and their products. And their hoodies. Their hoodies are really nice. And if you're in the UK, go to UKKnifesupplies.com. They're taking Full Blast 10. If you're in the EU, Keith Colby over at knifematerial.at, he taking Full Blast 10. And if you're in Australia, you got two choices. You go to nordicedge.com.au, and they're taking Full Blast 10. And Corin and the boys over at Gamaco are taking Full Blast 10 if you go to artisansupplies.com.au. Your boys. Your boys are taking Full Blast 10, Mert. Which I appreciate. So thank you, Ronald Knives, for that hookup, and uh, I appreciate you. Get yourself some of that Axe Wax, and you live live your life in a positive way. All right, next thing is, guys, Total Boat. Totalboat.com, they make adhesives, paints, primers, polishing compounds. They started out making products for boaters and DIYers, and then they looked at the maker community and realized that the maker community would benefit from their products. They make awesome two-part epoxies. I just use their two-part epoxies for uh, handle scales. It's great stuff. It holds all sorts of stuff together. And if you don't believe me, Keith Decent, Derek from Alden, Keith Johnson, Keith Mitchell, Woby Design, he took a lot of skateboard decks and he compressed them using Total Boat two-part epoxy. He milled it down, made a wooden bicycle held together with total boat and drove it down the street if it works for him it'll work for you and if you go to totalboat.com you put in promo code full blast 10 you're going to get 10 percent off all your total boat products i love total boat and i know jimmy Duresta loves total boat and everybody using total boat loves it so get yourself and if you're a knife maker why don't you give it a shot get some of that uv cure clear resin put a little bit in it to fill the holes next thing you know you hit it with that UV flashlight, and it, you, it's bingo, bango, bongo. You're on squared away. So go get yourself some of that Total Boat, totalboat.com. Thank you, Total Boat. And I want to welcome and thank again my friends over at Trojan Horse Forge. Trojan Horse Forge reached out to me. They, they sent me one of them vices, one of them stable rail knife finishing vices a while ago, and I was stupefied at how good it was. The stable rail knife finishing vice are built in the heart of Texas, and they're designed to take your handles finishing to a whole new level. You're, not only your handle, your regular blade too, with features you won't find anywhere else. The Quick Connect Stable Rail Blade Sanding Attachment allows you to minimize, maximize stability. The stabilization system helps support the entire knife, including the tip. That means you can hand sand the blade, and if you have uh, if you have distal taper, if you got a uh, an integral, it accommodates for all those different features so you can hand sand your blade with ease and comfort and then you can also turn it around and clamp it into to the other way and you can finish your handles their new 
flat sanding attachment incorporates the stable rail and transforms it with a rubber backed flat board so it protects your blade with the rubber backed flat board and it adjusts for tapers and even in integrals the rubber can be used you can cut they send you a pile of rubber and you can cut it to shape if desired it allows your blade to, to be slightly elevated and you can get the entire blade squared away attachment comes with six rubber adhesive back pads that can be used over and over again listen guys this I I've been using this now for almost a year. Every knife that comes into goes out of my shop is on that stable rail knife finishing vice from Trojan Horse Forge two two times. First time is when I'm hand sanding the blade. Second time is when we're finishing the handles. It's awesome, and I need another one, and I hope to get another one. And I think you need one too. So you go to TrojanHorseForge.com and and get yourself on the list. I know they do them in batches. That's the reason why we haven't been. They were so slammed last time that they said we have to back off because we can't we can't keep up with orders. So you get yourself one of them. And if you're saying to me, Jeff, listen, I love knife finishing vice is great. I love my two by fours. Trust me. The 2x4s are out. Put the 2x4s in the fire. You don't need the 2x4s anymore. I'm telling you. And then also, if you want, they do a payment plan. So you don't have to you don't have to pony up the whole situation. They're pay, doing payments. So go get yourself one of them stable rail knife finishing vices. The best finishing vice on the market for your knives. Okay? Many thanks to TrojanHorseForge.com. Go follow them on Instagram. Trojan underscore horse underscore forge. Thanks, guys. Good to, good talking to you a couple uh, last week, and um, I'm uh, I am completely on board with Trojan Horse Forge. My guest today is back. My friend, my good friend, Mert Tansu, one of the best knife makers I know. We had him on last year, and we 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 didn't get everything out, so we're back. We're back. Mert Tansu's back. Mert, how are you? I'm good, man. Thanks to thanks for having me again. It's good to be back. Last time I was here, uh, I messed up the time difference, and I was thinking that I'll start and we'll have two hours of time. Then I realized, oh shit, it's one hour further than I thought it was. And I'm like, Jeff, man, I love you, but I gotta take the kids or something. I don't know what I was, but yeah. So last time we had to cut it short. I felt like we were just warming up, and then it was like, yeah, done. That was. I tell you what, I remember that conversation. We we're having such a good time. We had your whole backstory grow up in you grew up in turkey and you you played you played basketball you come to the united states you become a chef you're living in new york you know you meet your wife you guys moved to australia pardon me atlanta atlanta that's right atlanta and then uh she's from new york yeah yeah she's a new yorker and then you move to Australia, and we're getting into it. You're your chef, you, you, and then you're getting into being a chef, and then all of a sudden you're like, "We're getting into the meat." And you're like, hey, Jeff, I gotta go. I'm sorry, I gotta go. And it was that was the end of that. So yeah, that was we're, bad. we're back though. We're back though. We're back. Have you been? What's going on? What's going on with the flood? Do you? You're in Australia now. Do you guys have floods a lot? Look, man, you got two options. Either way, it's super hot. It's bushfires, and you just you're just praying for the rain, or it rains and it doesn't stop. So you're just waiting. Can it stop now? Like, can we just have like the middle? And last few weeks was it like this? And the city limits I'm living in is it's now it's called a natural disaster zone because I think we got a rain that that rain that rains in the London for like a year or so. We got the same amount of rain within a week. Oh my yeah, god! Yeah, like it, it first day it's like raining, then like oh, I'll be fine. Then you keep straining. And I looked, I looked on the side of the house. I can see the glass, and 
there's probably like a seven, eight inches of water on the side of the house. And I was like, oh, shit, this is this is not cool. Like, it's raining, raining. So I had to get in and go in the backyard and get in the shovel and work on things. But yeah, man, it's I'll send you pictures. The, the golf course that we have in the town, the whole thing was submerged. The whole thing, was, the water level was like seven, eight feet in some places. I, because I remember I've seen pictures. I know Sausage Man Forge, his whole house got flooded a couple years ago. His whole, I, he was taking pictures of the whole neighborhood was flooded. I know that your shop is flooded a few times. Yeah. I mean, how do you prepare? How do you prepare for something like that? Is there are there things that you can do to say I'm not going to let this happen again? I mean, it just seems like it's just such a. I w- it would be so overwhelming to me. I know a friend of mine, Chris Zepp, is in this space in, in Long Island, and, it, and, and it, it doesn't even have to rain that hard. It's just the way the building is. He spends hours and hundreds and probably thousands of dollars preparing for rain. I just don't know how you you deal with it. Look, Jamie's case, Sausage Man's case, he lives right by the river. And if the water level goes up by like 10 foot or something like that, he's screwed because he's literally like a few feet above the river and that much rain luckily i don't think he had too much damage but in our case our house is on the hill we don't get anything only places that flood in our house is my shed and the garage which i also use it for my engraving station plus my shipping station so the two places that flood in the house are my my workplaces but other than that we're fine would, are you thinking about at some point? Are you thinking about getting a shop that that's kind of outside this floodplain, or would yeah. you consider moving? Uh, look, is it is it that's I mean because your life your livelihood is that shop is is is, is Tansu Knives. It, it is. Look, we'll consider moving, but it's not as easy. And yeah, and where we live is the kind of touristic region, and the real estate is crazy expensive and. There's nothing between either way. You're going to do what I do, like living in a street and there's neighbors behind you and all that, or you're going to have to move like a bigger lot in acreage. But there's nothing in like couple acres range. It's all like either way, houses like what we have or 30 acres. Like I just don't want a 30 acres. I don't want to pay. I can't pay millions and millions. Of dollars. I just want something. There's a few acres that there's neighbors nearby, but I don't feel like I don't want to be like right next to them, but there's nothing between. So if there was anything between, so like, yeah, I So when it rains, and you get like, you know, the amount of rain that London gets in a year in a week, yeah. How long does it take you to get your shop to the point where you can get back to work? Oh, look, I, I, days? I, I didn't have anything. The first time I had floods was like I had a like inch of water in my shop, and I'm like, it is what it is. I'll just. Keep keep grinding, you know, like you know, just dunk the blade on the ground instead of putting it in a bucket. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I remember, I remember you, you every time. I remember when you you your shop flooded a couple of years ago, and it's just I. That's one of those things. It's like that's the hardest the hardest part about, it, especially when you're a business person, and you're dealing with this these kind of natural disasters that you don't have any really control over. It's just so demoralizing. You know, I look, how do you? <laughs> I think you start learn you learn how to live with it now. My sort of clean room smells like a cave because there's moisture on the ground. There's just the floor has been wet for like a month. It just smells like cave, and all the stuff in there rusts. So I learned to not leave anything that is going to rust. Like if I got a finished knife that comes in the house and 
or the other option was like two three years ago we were talking about it we had all these fire danger and all the fires near us i had my like i had my old exotic materials and everything in the suitcase and just in case it happened that was what i was going to say for my shed so it's one or the other that those wildfires i remember that because it was right before the pandemic yeah right before the pandemic started and i remember because i was on uh your podcast with corn and and uh uh knife making down under i was on with you guys and I was asking a lot of questions just because I know that uh, I know that Kev Slattery was having real problems with the fire, and I know yeah. that it was like so just it was so devastating. I just remember I remember that because it was right before the pandemic started, yeah. and I just couldn't wrap my head head around how how you go on had these fires, how you can kind of how you can go on, and it would be too demoralized. I'd be too demoralized. I'm easily I'm a fragile guy, Mert. I'm a fragile. Look, the the mentality of a lot of the people living in Australia. I think you just make peace with it. You know, like you go on the beach, it's beautiful, you love it. That might be a blurring octopus you touch as you're dead. You know, like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> the water is nice. The water is nice. You know, Bondi Beach. Let's just get in there. Like, I want to surf. I just want to get my belly deep. And all of a sudden, the great shark is like taking a bite out of you. Like, oh, you're not a seal. Sorry. And he just bleed to death. You know, it's. <laughs> You just make peace. Australia is such a. How do you do? You, when you move to Australia, and it's interesting because you you never. You I mean you started making knives in Australia. Yeah. What was the culture shock for you? What was the culture shock? I mean, not just. I mean, obviously, I don't know how long you were you were you were in the United States before you you from Turkey, but what was the culture shock of living in of moving to Australia? Look, there was a there was a definite the culture shock because you realize, despite the language, you realize it's not U.S. It's a different pace of life. It's a different culture. It's a different, whole different thing. And when you start to adapt, adapt and adjust your expectations, you start to enjoy it. Because when you first got here, we're seeing things that didn't exist in Australia. For example, the you know, you drive in oil change and things like that. It doesn't exist. You go to a small shop in a small town, and like, hey, can you change my oil? And the guy's like, oh, I might. We'll flat out next week. Like, what do you mean? You're just sitting, you're sitting in, or you, you go to like bank hours. Bank hours are nine to four. And how do I, how do you get stuff done? And, but in, in return, you're not working as much as you do in the U.S. Everybody's on a, a lot of people are on a 38, 40 hours and that's normal. And when we first got here, I mean, I was executive suit and my wife was a, she was the manager of the, the, functions and sales and all that and we were told like you just have to work 38 40 hours if it's really busy maybe 45 and and the gm will come and say hey what are you doing here and like, I'm, I'm working like you've been here for 10 hours go home and like what do you mean like, what do you mean go home because you know back in hospitality work in the u.s you're working 10 hours like a sh- short shift for you and then you realize yeah. oh, okay you are working to live your life not the other way around then we but start. there's certain but but there's certain jobs i mean the rest the hospitality business is i mean you're an executive chef and i mean you're 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 one of the few knife makers bladesmiths who have real experience at you know as a professional chef at a very high level how do you how is it possible to prepare for service 
with in a 40 hour week that's like shocking to me that's shocking to me that means like you know 40 hour week is nine to five but i mean the service hours i just don't understand how you can a restaurant can operate at the highest level with people working 40 hours a week are you pay- how's that possible if your job requires you to work 70 hours that means you <laughs> the things are set wrong okay so, but back in the U.S., yeah. back in the U.S., working 70 hours was given. Like, oh, I just got to work hard because everybody does. And the wages are higher. The, you, and average eating out and dining out is cost higher. But also people know, people are aware, like, that's anything more than that is not sustainable. People are aware of it. Like, yeah, there's exceptions. There's few, like really high-end restaurants, the people are doing like 70, 80 hours, but they're doing it in four days and they're getting three days off, things like that. But again, that's the norm. People are completely happy with that norm saying, I'm going to do my 40 hours and 45 hours. And after that, that's it. I mean, there are a lot of people still do more than that, but that's the norm. That's the average. That was That was a shock for us. Was it? I bet it was. How did you feel, I mean, going from being uh, a chef in the United States, how was that change in being a chef in in Australia with that mindset of like, I mean, it's, you know, the funny thing, when you started saying that, all of a sudden I was like, how do you run a restaurant? But then all of a sudden I'm thinking to myself, after I'm thinking, how do you run a restaurant 40 hours a week? I'm thinking like, good for people to be able to have a life. Restaurant business is the worst. Yeah. The worst. I was doing, when I was at work, working in the restaurant business, I was easily doing 70 hours a week. Easily. Not even a question. Look, there's a, for example. It was expected of you. For example, there's a shift called as school mom shift. Nine to three. We had a lot of employees who worked nine to three. They dropped their kids off to school. And schools usually finish at three o'clock here. And their shift finishes. They pick their kid up. And they usually do like, a, that's their thing. And first i had like hard time like what do you mean like they're working only six hours but that's how it is i was thinking about i was thinking about the the interesting part of the, the the culinary history of australia and as an american whose first real idea of what australian cuisine was and australian culture was is like number one crocodile dundee unfortunately number two the men at work song who can it be now or oh no the men down man down on man down under and there wasn't a whole lot of like idea in regards to australian culture australian cuisine and all of a sudden it really kind of dawns on you that the cuisine of australia in and of itself is so it's so incredible, and the history, the new history of, of Australian cuisine relies so much on the abundance of natural, uh, of incredible seafood and incredible uh, meats and vegetables, and there seems to be this incredible, and then not to mention the proximity to Asia and all these influences. Australia's culinary scene is on the highest of levels. What was it like to kind of be part of that history? So, obviously, before coming to Australia, I was doing all of my research. I was learning, trying to learn the lingo, like learning what they call the certain cuts that we call different from here and trying to get an understanding. And just like U.S., Australia is also a country of immigrants. But I think the difference of U.S. and Australia is while a lot of the 
immigrants in U.S. are trying to blend in, the the immigrants in Australia they kept a lot of their own culture and it integrated in Australian's culture. So a lot of the a lot of the Asian cuisine found itself being staple of Australian cuisine. And good thing about not having like a long history in cuisine was people are more open to accept new things. So I remember running in the restaurant in U.S. You know, like even there were there were things that you had to put in the menu. You're in, you're in the four season. You're here and there, and there's still you're gonna have to rely on some of the usual suspects. You know, like you have to have this on the menu. You have to have this on the menu. You have to put lobster. You have to put the season like the old. But in Australia, I, I, I could easily say, "Hey, this is what I have in my menu," and nobody nobody was questioning. Why don't you have this? Why don't you have that? People were more open. That was one of the benefits. That was one of the great things. When I was doing something new in the U.S., I had to like jump through the hoops to try to make it okay for people to not try new things. And I had, and you see it going to restaurants in Australia. It's people are a lot more open to it. Huh. I wonder why. Because it seems like I, I know what you're saying. I was just actually listening to a David Chang podcast. I think he does a really interesting podcast that knife makers should listen to because it's a lot about creativity and there's a lot of connections between cooks and 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 being creative and the restaurant industry. And he was talking to the chef Evan Funky, Evan Funky, and it was an interesting conversation. We were talking about pasta, and at what Evan said, the chef said was is that you know Americans the way that they see pasta is you got to put it on the you got to put it on the menu. You just got to put it on the menu. Yeah. You just have it as a, something on the side. And there's this no kind of there's no there's no uh, revel, revelation of why the pasta is should be on the side. It's just you throw it on the side. You have to have it. You have to have a pasta dish on the menu, and it's like an afterthought. So I just it's interesting that you say that the Australians are so much more open minded for new cuisine. What were some of the things that you really kind of allowed you to be creative as a chef in in Australia? So. Obviously, we had to visit. We, I visited a lot of restaurants with my wife and trying to see like what's out there, what's good, and what what's the best out here. And then you realize like people are not confined to the boxes. That's what I saw. Wow. So you you come you come to Australia. And what gets you? What gets you into? You know, obviously you're a chef, so you know how to use culinary, culinary knives. What is it that kind of gets you into? I'm just doing kind of like a bit of a recap. What gets you into making knives? Probably the spare time that I had, man. <laughs> Otherwise, in the U.S. Oh yeah, I know, you know. <laughs> hey, li- listen, that's on. That's it. You, you don't have to work seventy hours a week. You know, what are you going to do with all this extra time? Yeah, look. take a knife making class, right? Yeah, look, I was collecting knives before I was before I got into knives, and it was funny because before making knives, I didn't even use know how to use a drill press or drill like no power tools. Growing up, like I never used any power tools. There are a lot of makers who here who are like boiler makers and they're blue right. blue collar workers. They're they're metal fabricator. Only thing the guy has to do is just he changes a couple of the tools and he has everything in his shop, or. Like he's, they're already doing like the things in the metal shops and things like that. I, I had no idea. I didn't know how to use any power tools, and I was already collecting knives, and I had knives from all the usual suspects except Bob Kramer. I used most of the good handmade custom knives, and and I, then I asked for a specific knife that I like from this Japanese brand. 
I reached the retailer, okay, man, I like this knife, but I'm really having a trouble with the iron cladding. It's rusting really fast. Can you just, can you do a stainless clad? Can you guys make a stainless clad? They're like, no, they don't make stainless clad. I'm like, okay. Can they make the full thing stainless? No, they don't make a full thing stainless. Like, I'm, I'm thinking, like, I'm not asking much. Like, like, think about a restaurant. You're saying, like, you're asking something. It's definitely in the menu. You know, it's definitely in the menu. You're just saying, hey. Right. Can you ask, can you put the gnocchi as a side dish on my thing instead of the pasta? Because I don't like too much flour. Like, no, 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 you can't have the gnocchi. I'm like, in some restaurants, I get it. Because that's the concept. That's the food. You shouldn't be going with that. Like, the crab will be too light for the gnocchi. It'll get lost. I get it. But I'm asking something simple. And I'm like, okay, this is not going to happen. And I end up reaching a custom maker. And he, he promised, you know, he said he's going to make me a beautiful Damascus knife. He did, and but the problem is the knife didn't cut. The knife was beautiful, but it didn't cut, and had zero distal taper, like zero distal taper, like, and spine of the knife was as sharp as the edge. And I'm thinking, like, okay, the guy knows how to make knives, but this is not it. This is this ain't it because this is not cutting. This is not doing the job properly. It looks pretty, but it's not doing it. And I was emailing back and forth. I was explaining, look, it's struggling with the tip because tip is thick because there's zero distal taper. And I found, I realized, although the maker knew how to make knives, he didn't know how to cook. He had no experience in cooking. Like his idea of cutting was he probably took a potato, cut it in half, like, yeah, job done. It cuts. Done. I'm like, uh, that's not it. That's why you have to test your knives. One thing about the Kulner knives is, unlike the zombie killers and all those all those fighting knives, you get to try the product. You can test the product and tweak the geometry, work on it. Don't get it out of the door till you're happy with the way it cuts. I, I, I sometimes I'm getting messages like DMs. Hey man, how thin is behind there? Like what? thickness you take it the thing i'm like i don't know i don't measure i just cut if it cuts good some of them cut while they're this many inches behind the edge i don't know that either like i just go with the millimeters i hope one day my american friends will go with the millimeters too but i know i'm just holding. we do millimeters with our guns <laughs> <laughs> that's right i mean come on let's take a joke yeah, so fun, I mean, no, yeah. no problem yeah and yeah, I, I mean, once I start send, once I start selling three eighths inch bullets, I think we'll, we'll be able to not completely get rid of the millimeter system. <laughs> oh. But you're right. Here's the funny thing: is is, and this is something we talk about on knife talk. The knife making. I mean, for me, I mean, I worked, I was at, went to culinary school and I cook, I cook at my home and I, I don't, I'm not making like high level, you know, tweezer food at home. I just cook for my family and I enjoy cooking. And that's the one thing that a lot of knife makers that we keep talking about is, hey, you can cut your bottles and you can cut your paper and the, the toilet paper and you can cut all that shit. But like you can do the same thing with an ax, you know, and it's, it's one of those things that becomes this. If you, I, sometimes I get messages too, you know, what do you, how, what starting thickness and you, I always just kind of want to say, you just need to know how to cook. And it's not like you got to go to culinary school. You just no. have to like to cook. And then you have this better feeling. You get more kind of comfortable cooking. And then you say what you like and what you don't like about a knife. You know, oddly enough, Jeff, 
I never had a bottles or papers on my mise en place list. You know, <laughs> people <laughs> people got the phone book. I'm like, cool story, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, I said to somebody once. They said, uh, "How many paper to- paper toilet paper rolls can you cut?" And I said, "Well, I'm not making paper toilet rolls for dinner." I'm like, you know, I, that's not. I mean, I don't. You know, it looks great, and it and it seems as though that stuff is kind of for more for knife makers than it is for anybody else. But like even Forge and Fire, when they're doing all this stuff, it's like, I just I I don't need a lot of flash. I don't need a lot of, you know crazy performances i want to see you cook and that's and then if you like it you like it the funny thing is and i think a lot of knife makers don't understand is you know when you're cooking you're not addressing your knife every chop you're not focusing on the if you're cooking if you're cooking dinner or you're cooking in a restaurant or you're just cooking at home you're not cutting and then stopping and admiring the knife mm-hmm. you know you pick up the knife which knife i got a lot of knives from a lot of knife, different knife makers one time i'll pick them one up every so often and there'll be things i like about this there's things that i like about that but i'm not constantly evaluating the knife while i'm cooking the dinner you know unless it's like something like it's like the spine isn't rounded and it's kind of you know feeling uncomfortable in the pinch position you know what i was i'm saying. interested in and interested for you in regards to when you started to make when you you, you know it's it, saying that like not being able to get exactly what you want from a knife maker what who was the first where was the first knife making class you took first knife making class i took was with auntie keith keith flutter i found him keith flutter. yeah i found him through i think it was the australian knife making australian blade forums or something like that. He was quite recommended, and he was probably four hours away from me. I drove to, um, I'm trying to, Tamur. Tamur is the name of the town. I met his lovely wife, uh, Robin, and I I met him on Friday. We did Saturday, Sunday. It was stock removal and took uh, took two days. And I'm looking at the shop. I'm thinking, like, man, there's so much shit in there, like so many tools and everything. I'm, I'm thinking, like, overwhelmed. There's yeah. the grinders, all these kind of you know, surface grinders, mill, this, that. and But on the way back, driving back, I knew I was hooked. I felt like I was cheating on cooking. I knew. I knew like this This was going to turn into something just more than I done once and I'm done. I knew it was going to be more than that. Did you see a connection between the process of cooking and the process of knife making? Was it like a very easy? Because it's not. It's there. There seems to be an easy transition. Do you do you see that? Yeah. Look, pretty much same thing. There's a vision in your hand in your head, and you put down the details. You break it down to smaller problems and smaller things, and you think about solution by solution, and then you put them all together and. You test it. You make a knife, you test it. Does it work? Oh, it doesn't work. Like you made something like, let's say you tried a new handle alignment. Like instead of going parallel, you said, oh, I just want to like a little offset handle be up in here. And you tried. It doesn't work. Then, okay, I had an idea. It didn't work. For example, dish, you think like, I wonder if anchovy is going to go well with the steak. With the acidity, like pickled anchovies or something like or can okay you have an idea you put the components together you taste it and then you see okay you're onto something maybe use too much of this too less of that you tweak it 
then you try it again and either way that was a waste of time it was stupid or <laughs> you got something great I, I, I think they're very close in that regard that's interesting because I, I was thinking more about the, the process of making but the, it's true that kind of creative process between creating a dish and creating a knife it's, it's more of the fine tuning of the final yeah. product which is where that's where you went which is kind of more I, I always saw it more along the lines of you know making knives and making food the same you're taking ingredients and proper technique yeah. and putting it all together for somebody but it, it is the you're, same you're it is the same. It is the same. So was it? So at what? So at what point did you think to yourself, "I'm going to get myself some equipment and make make knives"? Sunday on the way back from driving from Keith. <laughs> After the second day. Yeah, second day. I'm driving back when I'm I'm thinking, okay, he had this grinder and he told me to buy this. And on the way, I'm contemplating, man. Like I'm thinking, and we were living in rental property back then, and thinking, okay, I can set my workstation here. And the whole time I was like looking at this shop and thinking what I can replicate. Same thing in the restaurants. Like I've done stage, a couple of stages in really like well-known places. When you go look at the restaurant, when you work in there, when you work the station, or when you look at what they have, only thing in my mind was how can I replicate what they have here with my setup, with my restaurant setup? Or That, that was going through my mind the whole process. I was looking, okay, he, did, he, has, wow. he has three grinders. I can't get three. I'll get one. He's doing this and this, okay. I don't need that if I, he's forging. If I get a st- straight steel, as, you know, precision ground, I don't need to do that. So I don't need a surface grinder. He's using this for that, like he has a mill. He's doing full tank. I don't want to do full tank. I can skip the mill. That was my whole thought process. But as you said, no different than cooking. You have to start with the, you have to start with the good materials. No chef will can get you a, Good food from bad material, bad ingredients. It's not possible. So if you start with the good quality material, if you don't do anything silly with it, if you do justice and if you use the right techniques, right grinding, right polishing, first of all, right design and all that, at the end, you're going to come up with something nice. If you if you don't overcomplicate it, like let's say you make a nice, beautiful pattern model steel knife, you put a nice handle on it, that's it. Like you, just like a steak and potatoes, you done it. You didn't reinvent the wheel, but it's successful. You can add, you can add I was li- more into it, make it more nicer. But again, you got the base right. So you start getting more equipment, and then, I mean, the le- the fact that you've never used this is the first time you're ever using metal equipment. That is something that a lot of people have experience in. I know a lot of people who started out as welders, or they started out as yeah. plumbers, they started out as electricians, and they have a little bit of understanding of, or just woodworkers who have an understanding how to use these, you know, from going, but the, it's always the jump from going from home tools, like inexpensive home tools. Yeah to more industrial stuff. How was the learning curve of learning how to use these, you know, this equipment? I mean, now you have a ton of stuff. How did you, how did you find that transition? Look, I was lucky in regard. By the time I done course with Keith and I was buying things, I done another course. Uh, my second course was with Bill Burke. Okay. Then I also visited Randy Haas while I was in the U.S. And I can't, no, sorry. I did another course with Keith. After another course with Keith, I did a course with Bill Burke and Randy House. 
And good thing was visiting couple makers, I was able to see what I should be buying. A lot of guys, a lot of guys buy crap, junk, thinking, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to, I can't buy that stuff. I'll just use this. When I had limited tools, but limited tools I had, they were, they were not just like a, they were all right. Now, I had a proper drill press. It was old. I still have it. It worked. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, you know, amateur stuff. It was more like a industrial stuff, but it was old. Same thing with my grinder. I was using a two by thirty six tiny grinder for for a while, but again, it was a lot more powerful than the stuff that you get at the hardware store. How long ago? When was this? When was the first Keith Flutter class? Ooh, my daughter was a year old, probably two thousand twelve. So it hasn't been, you haven't been doing this that long. No, no. In the grand scheme of things. No, like 2012, maybe 13, but I will say 12. Wow. So it, so obviously because you, because you knew you weren't going to make hunting knives or bushcraft knives, yeah. you knew you were going to go culinary because that's what you wanted. When did you find that you were starting to make knives that you actually wanted to use? Because obviously it takes, you know, I, you know, it's, you know, the first 20 you throw away right off the bat. When did you start making knives where you thought this is exactly what I wanted? How long did it take? It didn't take me as long, but keep in mind, I was, I was collecting knives back then. So it wasn't like I made a knife, look how cool it is. It was more like I made a knife, okay, let me compare the knife that I made with this maker, this maker, this maker, and that maker. And I could I could the object so I could judge my work on a just pure test. I will do test cut with this knife, that knife, and that knife that I was they were like well known makers' knives and Japanese knives, most of them. And I was I was judging my work based on that and it didn't take me 20 30 knives and like for some it maybe take longer some people might do it at the first go i didn't get it done in the first go but at least i had a good basis i, I had a, something good i can compare my work against so a physical comparison yeah, physical as com- opposed to seeing what yeah uh, yeah like i I was making knives. I was grinding, doing a bit more sanding, like a bit thicker here. Then I'll say, "Oh no, I gone too thin." Now, but if after a few knives, I think I had the I had the idea. After a few knives, I had the idea. Look, my fit and finish were crap back then because I wasn't I wasn't thinking of it. I was like, I just want to make something that cuts. If the handle is a bit wonky, yeah, is it does it cut? Yeah, did did the work? That was my whole idea. And the best thing is, you, I made the knife, I finished it, I did a test cut compared to the other knives in my collection. That's a huge advantage yeah. to have that physical, that physical comparison that a lot of things you don't actually have. Look, for example, we'll talk about the cars. When BMW launches their new 3 Series, Mercedes will, will buy one, okay? They will drive it, they will use it, they will abuse the crap out of it then they'll break it apart all the parts okay then they'll work on their new c series and uh, the other company will do the same because what you produce has to be better than your competition I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've eaten in the places that they were kind of rival to you or you knew the restaurant nearby that that was doing well just to see what they're doing. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, usually either either you get inspired or you get depressed. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, that's really what it came down to. And I know that, like, actually, especially dur during the, the beginning of the pandemic, I bought a lot of knives from friends of ours. And it was a really great, it was number one to be supportive of our community just because I knew things were tough. But it was also, a lot of it was R&D. Like, it was interesting kind of getting an idea of what my, you know, my friends were making and it, it was, it did it actually just that in and of itself made a lot. I made some changes to what I was doing. Not like I'm going to do it like this guy or doing it like that guy, but it was, I was using, I was making comparisons mm -hmm. based on the performance yeah. and stuff like that. So that was definitely or so what I liked or what I didn't like. And it became something much more helpful to me, but it is an investment that a lot of people just don't have, you know? Well, because I was collecting, selling and buying knives, and that was something that was my hobby i could easily justify it because it wasn't like i was right. buying 20 and keeping 20 i would have i'll buy two i'll sell two or i'll buy three sell three or sell two but that way over the years i realized okay all the good ones that i liked had this all the bad ones they lacked this this and this and i had an idea what they should be like Australian knife makers now have become you th you would think based on the whole stupid crocodile Dundee thing oh. that Australian knife makers would be doing choppers and bushcraft knives but like the highest end of knife making in in as far as I'm concerned is what I see maybe I'm wrong I could be completely wrong it's culinary knives the culinary knife scene in Australia is some of the high it's the high it's one of the highest level per capita knife making countries yeah why do you think that is that it's culinary because you think you think it's like you know these guys need machetes and shit to go <laughs> run around chasing kangaroos but it's not i mean it's clearly you know you can list off a pile of knife makers that are making the best and it's all uh, culinary knives it's australia why do you think that is what do you think of australia versus the real australia especially from us it like, couldn't be farther apart First thing you see is like the crocodile dandy and all that, but then you realize in terms of the city population, Australia has the most people living in their cities compared to any any place else. Yeah, there's a big red in the middle, but most of the Australians live in the big cities. And again, why the culinary knives? Uh, food scene is great, and people don't mind spending money on the food. For example, when I went to Blade Show, people are buying three, four thousand dollar Bowie knives. And you show them a kitchen knife that's like thousand dollars. Like, oh, I can't buy that. What do you use? I use Dexter Russell twenty bucks. I'm like, I'm like, oh, why? But here, selling a thousand or two thousand dollar knife is not as difficult as US. Yes, population of Australia is nearly mid twenty millions or so, compared to three hundred something of US. But again. The appreciation of a high high end or good quality kitchen knife to make their cooking experience better, people are okay with that here. Do you think that the? I mean, it it seems to me when you look. I mean, I'm just thinking about knife makers in 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 Australia. You know, Will Morrison and you and Kev and Oatly Knives and all these guys and D D my uh, friend D. Uh, D pop off uh, Dimitri. D D Dimitri Dimitri yeah. Dimitri 
the knives these guys are making are 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 far more eastern inspired yeah they seem more japanese style knives as opposed to i don't see a lot of guys making i mean i would think of all the knife makers out there you're the only one who's making something kind of close to a sabatier style in terms of the shape of the handle but also for you one thing i've always noticed about your knives are you have a lot of your the radius of your blade is far more eastern so far more of a western style blade like i i noticed that your standard chef knives are closer to being a sabatier yes. than your companions out there in Australia that are closer to these kind of more Japanese-inspired knives. Do you think that there's something that true that? It is, it is true. I used to make Japanese-style knives for a long time, and I now find my style. And speaking of the sabatiers, I love old-school sabatier knives. Only thing that I didn't yeah. enjoy about them was their bolster, and I didn't enjoy the... Cheers, my friends. Cheers to you. Cheers. <laughs> I didn't enjoy the soft steel. And if you look at the... So this is how I describe the difference between Japanese and a Western-style knife. If you look at the heel height of the knife, let's say it's two inches. And I look at the, where the tip lays in comparison to the heel. So if the heel is above one inch, like closer to the upper end of the one inch, like one inch and above, that means the tip is going to stay higher. That's going to give you more... European style knife, but even with the European style knife, as you said, there are a few variances. If your tip goes like quite straight on the edge, then you're getting your classical sabatier style. But if you got a belly, then it's closer to German style. So I call my knives more closer to sabatier style knives, and I try to have my tip right at the middle, or like a couple millimeter right at the middle, or a couple millimeters above the midpoint, so they're not very lower on the tip. Yeah, well, because I, I mean, it's very, it's very class. I mean, it's everything about your knives, with the exception of the fact that they're hidden tang knives. It's you know, a lot of them scream Sabatier knives too. They've always have. Look, um, Sabatier knives don't generally are full tang, or, or at least they're full tang or uh, integral full tang. They, they're integral hidden tang too. Thierry uh, Isard, I think, or Nogent, they're all uh, hidden tang. I, I had a few. So when you started to make, I mean, obviously with the in, with the with the inspiration of your history as a cook or history as a chef, your your collection of knives, you're starting to make knives, and you head towards what you're you know head towards this kind of different style of chef knife than your contemporary your other guys. Other guys are making kind of sushi knives. They're making yeah. Japanese style knives. Do, did you were people asking you why are you going this way or was there any kind of like you know people did you did you find you that style was more accepted look everybody's making japanese style knives i don't want to be the yeah. i don't want to be the 101st guy who makes japanese style knives and i think if you see my knife regardless of my maker's mark you can tell you can tell the style you can tell ah oh, i see where this comes from yeah, there are a lot of other guys who make Japanese style. They have their distinct nuances too. But I think I can, I don't want to be the, I don't want to make it what everybody's making. This is my style. I think I managed to create my own style. And, and again, I don't make many, uh, I have two brands. I have Tansunai's and I have Hunter Valley Blades, which I'll talk about later. Now, under Tansunai's, I don't make many, many more Japanese style handles anymore. 
I don't enjoy it, and it doesn't give me any satisfaction. It doesn't give me any satisfaction to be the guy, 101st guy who's doing good Japanese knives. I'm like, I don't want to be replicating much. And now, with the, so for my Japanese style knives, I created a second brand, which is my Hunter Valley Blades. The whole reason the Hunter Valley Blades was born, I couldn't afford the high-end knives, the custom knives, because they were asking a lot of money. I'm like, I, as a chef, I didn't have that. And I said, okay, I want to make knives that are more affordable. Initially, I was doing them, but then I realized like, I'm, I buried myself in such a deep hole. I was making knives and selling for $300, $400, and I had a two-year waiting list, and I was proud of it. Then I realized, hang on, hang on, there's something wrong. Of course, there's a demand because I'm not, I'm not adjusting the supply. And I had up my prices up to a point that I felt comfortable to have not super long waiting list. Then I realized, hang on one second, all of a sudden I'm at this spot that I didn't want to be. I'm charging premium for the kitchen knives. And a lot of my former cooks and uh, cooks, chefs like me, they can't afford anymore. Then I did the Hunter Valley Blades line, Blades line which is my forged, uh, forged and machine finished knives with strictly Japanese handles. And them ones, I can sell them for almost half as what I sell for my Tanzu knives because I'm not hand sanding them. They're still good steel, but I'm using more simple handle material. And that line, I want to keep it straightly Japanese. I'm okay with making straightly Japanese in that line, but my knives, Tansu knives, I just want to keep them uh, more Sabatier style knives. Do you think that that's because it, it it just hand sanding aside and the handle material side? Obviously, it, it handle material is not always you know material in and of itself isn't always, depending on it, but isn't always what makes something as expensive as it is. It's the labor. Was it? Are you finding yourself the Japanese style knives is less labor for you and it allows you to kind of keep the price down? Yeah, definitely. If I if I was, if I was making a forged finish, uh, forged texture finish, forged knife. With the uh, forge, leaving the forge scale and everything, if I was to make a semi, that will take a lot less, maybe like a quarter of the time compared to my other knives. Like my handle takes a day at least. My handle takes a day or two sometimes, depending on if I was, if I'm doing like an heirloom finish on the bolster and I have to make the whole thing, heat it up, take it apart, chamfer it, put it back, and all that. But if I was to make a simple wah handle finish, like wah handle and a forge finish, that takes more time compared to the other stuff. Right. At what point do you you turn to your wife and say, "I'm quitting my job, not working in the restaurant business anymore. I'm starting Tansu Knives." Oh, uh, look, that that kind of like that was kind of forced upon us because you know we came to Australia thinking that we're going to be here for two years, and back then we had no kids and. We'll live in Australia for two years. It'll be a nice adventure. We'll go back to U.S. and then realize the life is good here. Like life, work balance is nice here. And yeah. the company that brought us did all the paperwork for us to be a citizen. And we, I'm sorry, permanent resident. And yeah, they did all the stuff for permanent residency. And we thought we'll be here for 24 months, and then we end up like two kids in a mortgage later we became Australian citizens but my wife's family is in US my family is in Turkey and probably six years ago or so um, I'm, in, I'm in the line like cooking you know, Sunday service I'm like oh, I think you should even work Sundays like I'm just cooking and my wife calls me and 
my wife cannot boil water to save her life. And usually she she calls me if she's like making a rice, and you think like I'm I'm the control center of the air, airport. I'm helping a civilian to land an airplane. Okay, the conversation like that. Do you see a button there? Okay, push the button. Yeah, that's the kettle. Okay, did you fill it? No, fill it with the water. What do you mean when you say like yeah? Of course you have to fill the kettle with water. So she called me and I said, "Is this urgent?" She's like, "Yes, I'm in the I'm in, I'm I'm in the uh, I'm in the ambulance." I'm like, "Oh shit!" So she was playing volleyball, and she played volleyball her life. But I think reality check like we're not we're not the athletes anymore. And it was the April first, and she said that she tore her ACL. I'm like, "Okay, that's gonna suck." And so I I left work. I left work and went there. And so my wife tore a patella tendon. Which meant that she, she was on crutches for a few months and she couldn't lift her leg and all that. And I said to my boss, like, my, our daughter was, she, you know, no, we had, yeah, we had, we had two kids. So I, my son was infant and my daughter was like four or something. And so all of a sudden, my wife cannot do anything. Like, she's on crutches, she can't work, she can't even walk, she can't. Drive nothing. So my boss was very understanding. And I said, look, man, this is what's happening. So I'll be back when I can come back. And luckily, I had my great sous chef. She covered me for like two or three weeks while I was away. And imagine, this will never happen in USC. Imagine saying your chef is going to tell you, I'll, I'll be back when I'm back. Two or three weeks, your chef is off. Impossible. 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 So... And we realized that like, we are running on a very thin margin. We have no family network. So I was I was hiring babysitters to look after my kids while my while my wife is laying in the bed. I'll go to work, and what I earned was covering just a babysitter. And at that point, I was already part time maker, and my income from knife making was not at my full time job, but two days of knife making was getting close to half of my full-time salary. I'm like, why, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? And Because I can't be the guy always saying, hey, kids are sick, um, I have to be home. And I enjoy what I do. And and I, I said to my wife, like, look, I have, to be, I have to make knives. This is it. And at, at first it was a scary thought, but I'm glad I did it. I wish I had done it earlier. Because by the time I done it, I had ordered my wait list and all that. Like I knew for two years will be fine. I had my wait list. I had the shows. I had stuff. I had things lined up. But yeah, I wish I had done it earlier. I think that that's the hardest part that most people dipping your toe isn't good enough for like, I think that there needs to be dire consequences for success, you know, in order to get success. And I think that there's a lot of people who not in the position of just having to make that hard choice. You know, I remember speaking of your wife, Kay Cook, when I was working, the last restaurant I was at um, with my business partner, Tony, and my, my good friend, uh, Scotty, in the middle of service, my wife couldn't, she can't cook at all, at all. And she called the kitchen line in the middle of service to ask my chef, my friend, Scotty, why... She took a, a piece of frozen chicken out of the freezer and put it right in the frying pan. And she couldn't understand why it was burnt on the outside and frozen in the middle. 
And my, and the chef stopped service. He was listening to her, and then he calls me up, and he goes, why can't your wife cook? And why is she calling me at the kitchen line in the middle of service? Because she can't cook. <laughs> it was it, He just he just laced me up and down. He says, number one, you got to teach your wife how to cook. Number two, she can't call the kitchen service line, kitchen during the middle of service because she, she ruined it from frozen chicken. But that idea of, like, desperation and really kind of having real skin in the game is kind of what makes and breaks people, I think. You know, you there's no other option. There's no plan B. This is it. Yeah, look, again, having no plan B, like burning the ships, was a good thing for me because a lot of the people have the chance, for example, a lot of people in Australia who are knife makers also have, like, are working in the mines or have good jobs, and they can bounce back. They don't have to. My thing was, I had to. Right. I, I have to do this. This is it. And there's was scary. It must have been terrifying. I remember losing my job. I, I worked for a guy, and he unceremoniously let me go on the end. He promised, 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 and then let me go after we installed on a Friday. So he basically let me do, go on the last day of the week after we installed so we could get the most out of me. And I remember that first day of that first Monday of, of what am I going to do? And I remember we had all these old radiators and I just brought all this scrap steel to the scrap yard. And I made, you know, I busted my ass. I busted my ass and I made for like, you know, radiate like five or six radiators. I moved these radiators and brought them to the scrap yard. And I, and I was dead at the end of the day and they gave me 120 bucks. And I was like, I just don't even have enough steel that I can do this one more one per month. I can't do this per one, one day per month. And it becomes this real necessary feeling of like, I got to progress now. So at what point are you getting involved with like, I know now you're involved with the International Woot Society. Yes, I was tell about me to tell about you the International Woot Society. And number one, start off with what is Woots? Okay, Woots has many names. Uh, Woots is Indian name for crucible steel. But Indian name? I didn't know Yeah, that's the Sanskrit name. Uh, we called it Pulat in Turkey, a Turkish uh, Pulat, Fulat. In Russian, it's called as Bulat. And there's a Chinese name for it too, but I don't, I'm not, I don't remember 100%. So uh, my first uh, foray into Woots was... I've been fascinated with the swords as a kid. You know, a lot of normal kids ask their parents to buy them like a bike. But when I was in... Just speak into the mic. Direct into the mic. Yeah. That will sound much better. So a lot of the normal kids ask their parents to get them like just a bike. back bo- off a hair. Just back off just a hair. Back off just a hair. But yeah, there you go. Go ahead. Right. Yeah, look, I, I was fascinated with the swords and arms and all that. And I keep, I keep hearing this... I keep hearing this, like there you go. this steel, and I keep seeing the pattern, and I didn't understand. I didn't make much of it back then. Then, then doing after more research, since I start making, I keep seeing like the patterns of the Turkish swords. I see them like I know what this is, and then all the concept is getting vague. Like people are calling pattern welder steel, Damascus steel. Then doing more research you realize what people call as patent welded steel is not not the same thing first sort of wood steel or crucible steel is made by in a crucible as the name says but 
now nowadays what happened was people in medieval times they were trying to replicate the steel by doing whatever they can do in patent welder steel so now the damascus name became the name for patent welder steel but historically what damascus referred was when the crusaders saw the swords in the city of Damascus or the markets of Damascus, but that's what it was referring to. And with the help with the few smiths and luckily the woods or crucible steel technology is coming back. But just like just like any in knife making, um, there's someone there's some they're doing great, there's some doing not so great. And we just decided that with the help of Tim Mitchell and Peter Bird. Michael's former shopmate. He's been doing wood steel for like probably 20 years. And Gene is from Woods Military. He's a sword restorer. And another uh, fellow named Sebastian, he goes under iPost Swords on internet. And we set this as a society. So the aim of society is to educate people about the wood steel and provide learning material. And also, soon we'll be doing a a certification similar to what ABS does with their journeyman Smith and Master Smith. So what categorizes Woots different from pattern welded steel is Woots is kind of melted down, right? Yes. Mel- and then, is that right? And then when you create like an ingot, yep. then you when you forge it down, one of the traditional looks of how you would identify Woots is you see a lot of the carbide. This is like that kind of like flaky carbide look, isn't that what it looks like? You don't want to see flaky carbide. Flaky carbide probably refers to dendrites having been broken properly, but what they call is a watering effect, like as if like as if you like splash a couple oil onto the water and it looks like a waves and curves. That's what they call watering effect. And you can never replicate it in the patent welded steel. So woods is done by melting it, and during the process, just like making a broth, all the impurities raise over on the top, and they, huh. they usually get caught up with the slag, which is like usually use glass or something. But and when you make a woods, you usually use actually the bottom of the crucible or like bottom of the ingot to make your edge, so you get a nicer, cleaner steel. So it's an incredible steel, and hard to make, hard to forge. But at the end, if you pulled off, it's it looks amazing, and I, I fell in love with so, it. So, so definitely go follow the International Woot Society on Instagram. I know you guys started uh, Instagram page. Yeah. Is it International underscore Woot Society or something like yeah. that? It's- International underscore Woots Society. And then, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, Peter Bert Schwartz is Peter Bert Schwartz is uh, Bert Peter Bert Schwartz. Yes. Peter Schwarzbert is his name. God damn it. I, I've talked to him a million times. It, it is an incredible... I mean, he's done so much of that, and it's great that you guys are, like, developing some sort of an organization that... Because that, there's a... there's a Obviously, there's an there's a, there's a interest in it because pattern-welded steel, mosaic steel, uh, all that Damascus has become so popular repopularized over mm-hmm. the past few yep. number of years and a lot of it has to do with instagram so it just seems as though it's going to be such a major event coming up you have the sydney knife show august 6th and 7th tell me about the sydney knife show jeff my hands hurt my thumbs are ground i got like 10 15 knives they're almost finished and 
I'm stressing the hell out, but I'm really looking forward for the Sydney Night Show. It's been two years since we had had it, and it's yeah, it's the most fun event for me for the year. And I'm really looking forward for the Sydney Night Show. It's going to be in the first weekend of August, and yeah. I'll have a table right next to me, and Dimitri will be right next to us as well. It's the biggest night show in Australia. Last year, I mean, compared to Blade, obviously, it's small, but it's a great event. And one of the best thing about it is, like, you pull in the parking lot, and there's Jamie, like, Sausage Man. They're doing blacksmithing demonstrations outside with the giant power hammers, and they're, like, forging axes and things like that. And this year, I think there'll be 170 tables, 170 makers. Wow. Yeah. I mean, if you if look... How far... Are they, are all Australian or you know, a lot of people from the United States or... Oh, it'll be mostly Australian with a few Kiwis, but we don't hold it against them. <laughs> uh, Jim Cooper, shot by Cooper, is coming to... He's going to be there to take pictures. That's going to be awesome. And I remember... I seem to remember this maybe five years ago. I would say four or five years ago. Or four or five years ago. You were you you shared a room with uh, Kev Slattery for the I think it was the Sydney Knife Show and you guys got you guys you guys drunk called me we did a drunk live stream from uh, from your hotel room I th- I think it was Brisbane because in Sydney I was oh. I think in Brisbane I think Sydney one we recorded a live thing and we were both pretending to be knife makers from South of America South like Southern accent with both of us it was hilarious. And I think it was the Brisbane, but yeah, look, it's a it's a great event, and once a year. Do who who come? I mean, for like, what's the type of what's the type of of person convention person who would come to the City Knife Show? Because you know the Blade Show, the Blade Show, it's not the Blade Show in the United States, and that's where you and I first met. Yeah. Um, it's it isn't necessarily for chefs don't show up cooks don't show up no. you know or if they do you wouldn't really know it's much more makers and you know casual knife buyers and stuff like that what's the what's the 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 type of demographic that would come to the city knife show look the demographic of blade and city knife show are very different blade show is entirely abs abs style Bowie knives, hunting knives, and all that. And I will say that in terms of the proportion, probably 70% of the knives on the table in the Sydney Knife Show are going to be kitchen knives. 60, maybe 60, 70%. In Blade Show, it's like maybe five, maybe less. Yeah. It's getting bigger. It's getting more, but at the same time, it's still, they're not like activating the culinary knife buyer to come to the blade show it seems like I, I, I was on the i was looking at the blade show page on instagram they had a post which electric knife sharpener is best your kitchen knife i'm like bro come on what are you doing like just wow they got a, the electric knife sharpening companies need to they they, they pay for tables too i mean their green their money's as green as everybody else's it, it does but like I think when anytime those Blade magazine or Blade people, they see a kitchen knife, they put a hazmat suit on, or if they hear the word stainless, still, like, they, they touch with the 10-foot pole, and if you say stainless or kitchen knife, they're like, uh, we, don't, we don't know what it is. Like, it's, 
Tell me about us. Tell it, me about a bully. It's interesting. It's interesting that you say that because I was talking to Craig Lockwood uh, on Knife Talk, and we were talking about if you had, if you had the ability, if you had to choose between one type of steel, carbon, carbon and stainless, for your business, and without talking alloys, don't talk about anything else. What would you pick? And he and I both picked stainless steel, and the reason why is. My customers, because of my price point of the knives that I'm making and the, the kind of the, the, the ethos of why I sell anything, mm-hmm. I, I come from the, you know, the, the uh, Keith Herring school of an artist where art's for the people and the, you keep the, price reason, keep the price to the point where it's approachable. I also want my, my customers are different. I think about this with the, the, cust- the people who come to Blade Show. Keep, uh, my customers are usually first-time knife buyers, yeah. or they're the type of knife buyers who don't know the difference between carbon and stainless. And it's interesting to me because I try not to buck the system in regards to what other knife makers think, because I would rather focus my attention towards people who just want to spend a little bit more money on a knife that you know they can just enjoy. So stainless to me is like, I mean, 95% of my knives are stainless that I sell. But I, I just wonder what you think in regards to. I mean, our customer, your customers, and my customers are totally different. Look, totally different. I love stainless. Okay, when my shed floods, I'm not throw my my stainless knives. They don't rust. Okay, <laughs> and stainless is baking. Okay, and for anybody who's getting into knife making, if they don't have the proper gear, if they think they can heat treat the stainless in the pipe in the, their forge, don't. But good thing about stainless is. You don't have to worry about, oh, my hamon came too low. I had a problem with the hardening of this 50 to 100. Did I forge it hard high enough? Did I break the carbides and shit? No, no, no. Stainless. Either stock removal or you go crazy like me, do a fucking forged damage steel integral, but shit hardens. Just pull out of the kiln, either plate crunch, oil crunch, whatever you do. That's it. You don't have to worry about like... What if my thing warps? Bend it back. Make it straight. It doesn't crack in the heat treat. Doesn't doesn't give you headache. It's simple. You know, like it's it's foolproof. Like you can't fuck it up. If you follow the steps, you can't fuck it up. I will say that I've stuck with 440C for so long because I've had so few problems. I've had, I've, I mean, the only problems I've had is because I hot, sta- I stamped a V too close to the spine and the V made a crack, yeah. but that was, that was before heat treatment. That's it. And I, and I find that a lot of chefs, and we talk about this in the United States is a lot of chefs, they don't know anything about knives. No, I mean, zero. No. It's not much. Why do you think that is? They don't care. They don't know how ovens work. They don't know how the mixers work. I, explain to me why uh, I don't know professional chefs who can't, couldn't tell you the difference between the simplest reason between carbon and stainless. All they know is I want to have Japanese knives in their kitchen. Okay, no, you, you've been overambitious. Tell a chef, go to a kitchen in a restaurant, give them a knife, give them a stone, and give them, a, or tell them how do you sharpen this knife. Ask him. So, as your main tool, you don't know how to keep your tool shop. A lot of the places I referring to they're they're using mobile sharpeners, people with the bench grinders to fuck up the knife or people are using pull tool sharpeners because 
it sharpens them sort of like quotation marks let alone steel let alone carbon steel differences many people are incapable of making their dull knives work again and as a chef that's your tool so it's not just a knowledge between carbon and thing but again i think overall knowledge level is getting better but again how many people you knew in your restaurant who knew how to sharpen their knives jeff i don't i mean i couldn't answer that yeah. i couldn't i i was i was too i couldn't answer that but i know that i know that when i go to my friends restaurants and then there's like a there's like a, a sheet tray rack and everyone's knives are on it some of those knives are pretty dull yeah you know and it isn't just like regular dull but i mean a lot of these guys don't care what's your opinion on and this is something that i've been talking to a lot of people and no no disrespect to food release but have you ever have you ever heard of a chef saying i only buy knives with food release uh yes and no and like look the way i did my food in the restaurant was this is my food okay I'm not going to change it because you want something else. This is my food. I had the same thing with the knives. Like, can you make me something like this? I'm not. This is my knives. This is what I like about them. This is what I think they work for. And I can make you an X. X will have the best food release. Or I can get I can get you like a point eight millimeter razor. They'll have the best ease of cutting. And anything else just falls between those two ends of the spectrum. You make a very good point. An axe has the best food release yeah. because whenever you cut with an axe, it's going to shoot it across the room. Yeah. <laughs> cut, you cut a carrot with an axe, it's going to, it's going to, it's not only food release, but food like, <laughs> you know, just catapult. It's going to release it across the room. That is hilarious. I just know that like there's so much people and even Mareko stopped talking about food release. He's like, I don't see the S grind is not I don't say food release anymore no. because obviously it's not all food doesn't need to be released. No. It's potatoes. Potatoes stick to the side of your stick to the side of your knives, but do I need to pay an extra fifteen hundred dollars just for potatoes? You know? again again, a lot of the makers will go to full full fucking flat grind okay if you're doing a full fucking flat grind on a paring knife that's okay if you're making a full flat grind on a um like a petty or like a slicer that's okay but if you're doing a two inch on a full flat grind on a really thin knife because the geometry doesn't change anything then the sticking might be an issue it might be annoying if you have zero convexity if it's full flat yeah that's that's an issue but if you have any if there's any convexity in the blade if it's ground properly versus like just full flat, it shouldn't be an issue. S, yeah, I've done a few S grinds here and there because I was using 1095 and I want to make sure my steel hardened. So I took some off from the middle, but S grind is not the solution to everything. If you do a nice convex, it's hard to beat nice convex grind. Hmm. So. What I mean when you talk to I mean I know that you you're on the uh, the knife knife making down under and I know you guys haven't done one in a few in a while I'm hoping you guys are going to do more I do enjoy the knife they I do done enjoy one last week I was away they done one last week bastards 
Knife making down under is a lot of fun. It's usually if you're in the United States and you wake up, you first wake up, follow knife making down under on on Facebook because they do a live feed off Facebook and you can actually interact with the show, which is a lot of fun. And and uh, once in a while, when I if I wake up and I'm on, I I do enjoy it because now for me it's like nine something for you. Got to be got to be in the at night. So it's definitely. It's eleven forty-one. Yeah. So, I mean, do you think you guys are going to be doing anything more regularly? Or look, if you look at how knife making down under went was the lockdown here. All of a sudden, when that lockdown happened, we went from let's record a podcast and let's talk about the things and knife making and all that. It became a venting point for us. It was a great outlet, right. and it wasn't just for us. And we had a lot of people messaging us saying thank you because. They just want to be able to, they were looking for relief. They were looking for, like, we were the pub that they couldn't go to. Right. We were the friend. I mean, that's. Yeah, we were the friend that they couldn't drive to their house. And it was that. And it was, it was like a being, in, it was like the pit. We had the pretty much pit yeah. environment in their, in their phone, in their living room or on top in the computer every time. That was great. And when the, Luckily, the, all the COVID restrictions eased off. That meant all the kids' sports started for us, and Cornet to be a lot more on work. And then the same thing with Kevlock, and all of a sudden, we fell behind. And then now, last few months, we we've done a few episodes. It was great. It was great to get back, and we'll be doing we'll be doing we'll be doing them a lot more frequently. It never even occurred to me because when we when when right before the pandemic started. We started doing more episodes of Knife Talk, and then that's what Full Blast started because I thought let's just have more content to keep kind of people occupied. Yeah. But we, but what you, what you guys were doing in having a live feed where people could interact, and the funny part was you guys were all drinking, and then all the people you were, all your, all your listeners were all drinking at the same time. Yeah. It really was like you guys were having like this kind of virtual pub. Yeah. It was a really, because I, I, I know, I know for a fact, because I, I, I get the, trust me, I get the messages from fucking Australians. <laughs> they want to take, they want to fucking take a piece of me and Craig and give us a, in Morocco, they, they want to, they want to know that how it is in Australia, that you guys are the number one knife related podcast in Australia for sure. I never realized that it was this kind of like communal aspect yeah. of it that was something that's different than a lot of podcasts look we, we were really getting like people were getting anxious saying like hey man it's been long like it's thursday why aren't you guys on like, it was like almost getting pressure peer pressure that's actually become something that be, when you start to do something that regularly yeah. we have to like we if we miss we don't miss a week i don't miss a week with this and then we don't miss a week on f- knife talk People go crazy. Yeah. Like if they're if it's not out for their drive on Monday morning, people get upset. Yeah. They're like, "What happened? What's going on? The, you know, where where's the knife talk? How Life. am I supposed to drive to work?" And it's this it's this. But at the same time, it's like it's almost, it is almost is like the new community. It's like the new community of listening to people doing like minded things and kind of going through the same thing at the same time. I think that some of the podcasts that came out of, I mean, the funny thing is is well, not funny, but the dumb thing about the pandemic was. 
our numbers for Knife Talk got washed away because everybody and their mother started a podcast yeah. during the pandemic. And we were pre-pandemic. You guys were pre-pandemic, too. Our numbers got washed away, and then you start to realize, well, I would say to Craig and Marekos, let's just keep going. Let's just keep one foot after the other, and we'll just kind of keep you know chugging along, and it'll be fine. But it is interesting how everybody's numbers changed because of the influx of new podcasts. Because everyone thought, I'm home, why? and I can talk. Maybe, maybe I should start a podcast. One of the things that the stories that I love you to tell, which was a, which is a terrible story, was how you got scammed by that knife buyer. It happened like a, over a year ago, and you not only did you get scammed by the knife buyer, but you got taken to the cleaners by PayPal. Yeah, so it, it was a good lesson for to with the, I, I ditched PayPal after this because right. I, I wasn't aware of it, like how PayPal offered no protection for sellers like us. And uh, so, long story short, this guy orders a knife and doesn't know the knife steals and things like that. I'm explaining him and he shows me, I want this knife and it's a differential heat treated 26C3 uh, spicy white steel. And I'm like, okay, I'll make that. Then I make a small paring knife and it's a stainless clad 52100. So I like the pattern of the steel in this. Can you make that? Yeah, I can. And... I made him a stainless clad 5200, and then he got the knife, and then all of a sudden he's like, oh, apparently you charged this much for this, not that I gave you too much extra refunded. I'm like, no, you ask for this, this is it. Anyway, so he filed a, he did a, um, he disputed the transaction on PayPal because it was high-end custom handle. Handle was separate. I, I took the money up front for the handle materials, and I took the money later on for the upon the completion of the knife. Then what I realized is, so with the PayPal, if somebody is not happy with what you provided them, up to six months, they can still file a dispute. And if somebody files a dispute with you, PayPal doesn't say, hey, can you clear it? No, no, PayPal takes the money away from you, your account, and then you have to try to prove yourself. But in PayPal's point, you're a scammer, you're a piece of shit douchebag because somebody's upset right. with you. And so PayPal took a big chunk of money out of my account. I'm like, this is bullshit. And I shut my PayPal and I tried to get a pay payment for another knife that I was selling through my wife's PayPal. And PayPal blocked that because it's unusual activity and all that. I'm thinking like, no, this is a nightmare. So I took all the screenshots. I sent my letter of like how I defended myself and now so, so the guy has to either return the knife or I have to give the money back he can't return the knife unused because he's been using the knife I know so he had a certain time to be able to return the knife I'm calling PayPal and they're no use they're like fucking hopeless so the time the time frame that he had to return the knife lapsed and he didn't return the knife and I called because the second uh, strike of the um, dispute was going to end in two days and I end up I was lucky I ended up talking to a kind of more upper manager than the previous guy and the guy said hang on a second was this a custom order I'm like yeah this was a custom order and the guy said okay sorry so when it's custom order PayPal doesn't offer any like when it's custom order actually you're kind of secure but again I realized I will never use PayPal again. I ditch PayPal. Now I'm taking payments over Stripe, over credit card, Apple Pay, whatever. But yeah, 
I suggest all the people to ditch PayPal because PayPal doesn't just get you with the fees. They get you more with the conversion rates, especially if you're working with the exchange rate like myself. For example, 100 Australian dollars is like 145, uh, sorry, 100 US dollars with the yesterday's currency rate is 144 Australian dollars. So let's say I sold an iPhone for $100. So I'm getting 95 US dollars. So if I want to if I want to convert that ninety five dollars to ninety five US dollars to Australian dollars, I'm getting hundred and twenty because PayPal says, "Hey, these are my rates. Take it or leave it." So I was getting like seventy five eighty percent of what I was making from PayPal, and what happened was they end up refunding the guy from their own pocket. They refunded the money they take up from my account. And I stopped using PayPal for business transactions. I recommend to everybody to stop using PayPal immediately. Just go take credit cards or something, but don't take PayPal. It does not offer so, any protection. But you got your you got your money back. I got my money. The money that they took from you. I got their money back, but I saw I I lost sales. I lost sales and also I couldn't I couldn't take PayPal, I couldn't take payments, and I end up eating a shipping cost because the knife I said I sold to a client of mine, I shipped the knife because I got the money right. I had to call DHL and divert the package back from like from mid Europe back to Australia. Because PayPal said I decided. That's a couple hundred that's a couple hundred bucks. That's a couple hundred dollars. It was a two hundred twenty dollars because knife was insured. It was a high end knife. I remember when you heard that st- you heard that story, and I was sending. I was. It was so like it just seemed like that guy in spe- that specifically that guy seemed like he was just nefarious. Because I hear on Knife Talk, we get messages from people saying that like somebody didn't like something, and so instead of dealing with the the the, the maker, they go straight to PayPal. And then, you know, I I use your story as a reference, but I just remember you kind of like I said, well, who is this guy? And I don't remember his name, and no need to even say his name. But I definitely remember you screenshotted his profile, sent it to me, and then maybe a couple months later, that dude started following me, and I got this cold sweat down my back, and I was just like, I just need to block this guy immediately. I just can't get involved with this guy at all. I, I, I felt like that there are so many people out there who are looking to give knife make well give business people a, uh, such a hard time, you know. I, that was a terrible story. I hated it. For example, one thing that I didn't know. Let's say, Jeff, you sold the knife to guy. Hey, can you ship the knife to my cousin? I'm going to be away that week. And you're trying to provide a service. You ship it. And all of a sudden, in PayPal's eyes, you're not shipping the knife to the address that PayPal is associated with. Zero protection. So the guy says, hey, he didn't send me a knife. No, no, I sent it. This address. No, nope. PayPal doesn't accept that. So you're out of knife. That would be the move. Yeah, never. Oh, God. Never, ever ship something if you receive money from PayPal to a different address than what it came with. We've stopped using PayPal as the uh, where we take everything. I mean, you can use... I mean, it's been... It was been something I just remember Tony telling me is just like you know we're just paying paying way too much money on PayPal. Yeah, too much money. I mean, there, we're our, the the amount of money that we're paying just in fees. He's like they be, should be sending us like Christmas 
fruit baskets and stuff because I mean we're just making PayPal so much money and it, and it, it it's definitely one of those things that you hear about these stories and it's just like that's the reason why these all these scammers out in wherever are all using Western Union because they know that if they use PayPal they're gonna get they're gonna get that money taken away from them. One thing with the high end knives is like some people they just want to hold the knife they want to own the knife and they're done. They're done. Can you take this knife back? I go, okay. Is there anything wrong with the knife? No, I just got it, play with it, want to take it back. Okay. Per the website, per the transaction agreement, there's a restocking fee. If it's in a custom subject to custom customs, because if the knife is over a thousand Australian dollars, even if it's your product, you're taking it back because it's a high value, they charge you custom fees. Because they're dealing with the high-end stuff, and and if they don't accept it, oh, dispute. So I don't take PayPal. Fuck you, PayPal. Where? Fuck you. Where are most of your customers from? Uh, I will say sixty percent U.S. or overseas, forty percent Australia. It used to be it used to be like eighty to twenty, but now lately it's been more shifting towards Australia. How hard is it for their the shipping part? Like, is the shipping and the customs a giant part of? Is that a, a, a concern? I mean, I know you use DHL, and I know I, I know talking to Morocco. Anytime he sends anything overseas, he's always using either FedEx or DHL. Look, it's how hard is it having customer base out outside of the country? It's easier, almost easier. Like, oh, it makes no difference. It makes no difference if I send anything within Australia. It's few clicks from the Australian Post app. If I'm doing internationally through Australian Post app, I just have to fill up four more four more boxes. You know, like people make such a big deal about it. It's it's not a big deal sent from here to US, but I think from US to Australia it's quite expensive. From this is our biggest problem. This is the this is the conversation we have every week. And I had to stop it because we were spending too much time on it. Shipping from the United States to outside of the United States is a, such a production yeah. because, number one, if you use the U- U.S. Postal Service, as soon as it transfers to the border of another country, it's no, your tracking is no longer there. There's no, there's no like getting a hold of having any really information in regards to where do it you know goes. What so you can do for as soon it? as it goes over there. Pardon me? You know what you can do for it? The destination Go ahead. Destination countries post office will take care of it using the same tracking number in their own website. That I understand, but like the all of a sudden once the the US Postal Service doesn't take any responsibility once it changes yeah. hands. So like you're that's number one. Like I've had great experience with the US Postal Service in the United States. The other thing is, is sending anything outside the United States is a super duper expensive. Like if I wanted to send a T-shirt to the UK, I got to charge forty bucks for the shipping, and I don't even taking a penny. It's forty bucks for a T-shirt, and then it's still going to take. It could take three weeks. I sent something to Alex Pohl, and I thought I had a, I had a plenty of time. It was exorbitant price. And then it took months. It took months to get over there. And then all of a sudden, you can't really charge people sixty bucks for a couple for a knife in shipping, and then expect them to understand that it's still going to take a month and a half to get yeah. there. 
So we've had to really, we've had to just, and then UPS, if I tell you how bad UPS is in the United States, if I said, I'm 50 minutes north of Manhattan. If I went to just use UPS ground, a knife from UPS ground in my town to Manhattan, it's going to be $40. It's going to be $40 anyway. Are you taking a cab? So UPS, <laughs> I could take a cab. I could take it. You know what? It would be cheaper for me to take a cab and hand deliver it than to, to use UPS. So the shipping outside of the United States, and I get messages all the time. People say, how do you ship to United? How do you ship outside of the United States? And it's, I don't understand it. Like I get something from Fingal. I get something from Fingal in three days. He sent me a box of food in three days. Wow. Tomer of Florentine Kitchen Knives. He sent. I bought a knife from during lockdown. I got it from him in three days, and it wasn't. And I, he didn't charge me. I mean, it was like the shipping, and it was using DHL. It was nothing. That's our biggest problem. Yeah, look, DHL and Australia Post prices gone up last month, unfortunately, and also I didn't hit my quota. When I signed up a deal with the DHL, I was saying I'll get a quota, and unfortunately, this year I didn't hit it. But still, they're usually reasonable. If you if you and I, I I put on my webs I put on my one of my email releases. I said if the knife costs over a certain amount, I'll send it with the DHL. If I'm sending a thousand dollar knife, yeah, if the shipping is sixty or seventy bucks, so be it. Because one good thing about DHL is they use their own network. They're right, very fast. so it's it's in their hands the whole way. It, they're not like, hey, USPS, can you take it? Or like they go to third country's office and say, hey, from here it's you. No, 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 it's them. It's their thing, and they're fast, and they're tracking. Like you look at their tracking, even their tracking tells you 20 things that tell you where it's been, where it's scanned, versus you look at the US, US, USPS. I mean, obviously they got a great volume, I understand, but like in transit, like you wait for a month. In transit, which part of transit is it? Like, is it in? It's that's the, it's it's nothing but trouble. But I know that if I could, if it, I could easily open up my business to international, I would probably triple my business. But I just can't. I mean, it's just it's just unreasonable, and it's one of those things that drives me crazy because I can't charge someone, you know, twenty five bucks for a t shirt, but then I charge them forty bucks for shipping, and then all of a sudden they gotta wait, <laughs> they gotta wait a month to get it just because USPS just wants to take its time. It sucks. Last question I want to ask you about is: Talk to me about the Australian Blade Symposium coming up in September. Oh, look, dude, that's again. Just like a hammer in, but it's again great event. It's held in Thabo Valley uh, Forge, and every year we've been getting uh, instructors from overseas. Last time we had it, we had Rodrigo Sfredo. Before that, we had Kevin Cashin. We had Bill Burke come in, and it's a event like a it's like a hammer in, but more formal classes. So over over three days, like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, there'll be classes on the uh, Friday evening, uh, 2 in the a.m., 2 in the p.m., and with all the food provided. It's a great event. Usually, if somebody's getting a knife making, I tell them to come to uh, Australian Blade Symposium because if there's something that you want to improve in your knife making, there's somebody teaching it. If you want to get better at patent welder steel, fitting guards, leather sheath, leather work, or I, I've been doing sharpening and Japanese handle classes. I've done kitchen art classes there. So if there's anything that you want to get get your knife-making game up, there's somebody showing you exactly how it's done. Food is provided. It's a great event. 
And are you noticing that the the demand for knife making? I mean, I'd actually, I, you'd have to ask Corin. Really, are you noticing this uh, still in, incline in people making knives at home and yeah. doing it as a hobby? Is it is it growing? Oh, definitely, definitely. Because the biggest signs is the grinders always out of stock. People are getting into knife making, and you don't see a lot of people. Hey, I, I'm quitting this hobby. I'm selling everything. You'll see like stuff like that maybe once a year. You'll see a one person selling their gear because they got in and they're getting out. But you still see everybody, a lot of people getting into this hobby. You still see a lot so of people. Corin Slam, Gamaco Slam. He's he's doing all right. He's doing all right. <laughs> he's doing all right. He's doing all right. He's doing all right. <laughs> if you're saying he's doing all right, that means he's doing really all right. <laughs> Good old Corin. Yeah. So what's next for Mert Tansu, Tansu Knives? What's next? What's next? What are you working on now? You're work, getting ready for the you're getting ready for the Sydney Knife Show. How many knives do you think you'll have for that? Uh, I'll probably have uh, 15 knives and a one sword. Whoa! Yeah. What kind of sword? That's a Turkish Turkish sword. Yeah, it's, it's Kılıç. Uh, I'm doing a 16th century Kılıç. I got the blade already forged, heat treated, and ground. And so this project has been really hard because. They look similar, like knife, sword, sword is a bigger knife, right? Yes, you think that, but there are a lot of nuances. Your tooling doesn't fit. You're, all of a sudden, you have to learn a different kind of scabbard, and you have to learn how to make mounts, and you have to, I had to learn how to do gold inlays, and, and I, I had to learn a whole bunch of new skills. I had to get a new forge that it can take a, I can heat treat a sword. I had to, I had to learn how to make crucible wood steel and so i've been working on off on the sword for about last six months and i'm hoping that i can finish it but it's mentally eating me alive it's but i yeah i just want to finish this jeff i just want to finish it i just want to get it right would you consider uh would you consider testing for the abs Oh, yeah, I'm, I meant to test it this year, but by the time Australian custom, by the time Australia eased off the travel restrictions, it was March. And the thing with the Sydney Night Show and Blade Show, they're like only a couple months apart. And if I went right. to Blade Show, I wouldn't have enough knives. Like, I'll get my jazz stuff ready, but that means I'll have like maybe a couple knives to sell. And then I had to turn around in two months to prepare. <laughs> 10, 15 knives, and along with selling knives for a living, that was going to be too much. I said, no, I'll just do it next year. I'll be doing my jazz do you, next year. Uh, hoping, hoping, crossing my fingers that there are no more pandemics. Oh, for fuck's Will sake. you be coming to Blade Show next year? Yes. Yes, because uh, this year I really will not, but couldn't, couldn't do it. But yeah, next year, man, next year I'll be there. Next year I'll be there. I will see you there. No pandemics. With no pandemics. No pandemics, my friend. I will see you there. See you there, Jeff. I will see you there. Hope so, my friend. Mert Tansu, guys. Tansu underscore knives on Instagram. Hunter Valley Blades on Instagram. Go follow the International Woot Society on Instagram. Follow them because this is going to be a really great resource for you guys. I want you to, if you're in Australia, you already know about the Sydney Knife Show, August 6th and 7th, and the Australia Blade Symposium. Mertansu is one of the great guys. I remember fondly meeting you, standing at your table. You were so smart and generous, and you gave me that set of fucking kangaroo Bears. skin testicles, which I I hang here. <laughs> I have pr- I have proudly in my shop, which I love very much. 
I appreciate you making the effort to come on here, and thank you so much, Mert Tansu, my man. Jeff, thanks for having me, man. It's great to talk to you, and hopefully see you Blade Show in person. I'll see you in Blade Show. I want to get on that knife talk down under. <laughs> I want to get on knife taking down under again. You guys got to let me back on. We had a good time the last time. Yeah, man. Look, we'll, we'll record another one soon, and I'll give you a heads up, and we'll love to have you back. I love it. All right, guys. Thanks again, Amert. You're the best, and it's just so great to have you guys. We will see you next week. Thanks again, Mert. My man, thanks. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. 